in the morning. In the morning. I feel so bad in the middle of the day. Yeah. I feel so bad in the evening. In the evening. That's why I'm going to the river to wash my sins away. I'm going Sister to Rosetta Tharp was an American singer, songwriter, guitarist, and a pioneer of mid-20th century music. She attained popularity in the 1930s and 40s with her gospel recordings characterized by a unique mixture of spiritual lyrics and rhythmic accompaniment that was a precursor of rock and roll. She was the first great recording star of gospel music and among the first gospel musicians to appeal to rhythm and blues and rock and roll audiences, later being referred to as the original soul sister and the godmother of rock and roll. No, 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 She influenced rock and roll musicians including Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley, and Jerry Lee Lewis. When Johnny Cash gave his induction speech at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he referred to Sister Rosetta Tharp as his favorite singer when he would listen to her on the radio as a child. WHBQ, and they had a program on there called Red Hot and Blue late at night where they played back then what they called race music. And there I heard some of my my earliest heroes. And it was at the home of the blues record shop where I bought my first recording of Sister Rosetta Tharp singing those great gospel songs. Willing to cross the line between sacred and secular by performing her music of light in the darkness of nightclubs and concert halls with big bands behind her, Sister Rosetta Tharp pushed spiritual music into the mainstream and helped pioneer the rise of pop gospel. I'm so glad somehow I've got salvation now. It keeps the spirit moving in my soul. Lottie Henry, a member of Tharp's backup vocal group, the Rosettes, remembers Sister Rosetta Tharp's talent. She could play a guitar like nobody else. Nobody. Here's Joe Boyd, American record producer and writer who played a crucial role in the recording careers of Pink Floyd, R.E.M., and 10,000 Maniacs. I think Rosetta was a hugely important figure. Let's you know, She was really unique as a guitar player. She had a big influence on somebody like Chuck Berry, who was one of the most influential guitar players in the world. And here's Gordon Stoker from Elvis Presley's backing band, The Jordanaires. She did incredible picking. That's what really attracted Elvis was uh, her picking. And he liked her singing too, but he liked that picking first <laughs> uh, because it was so different. Don't you know now this train is a clean train? Everybody riding in Jesus' name. And here's Gail Wald, Sister Rosetta Tharp's biographer. She had a major impact on artists like Elvis Presley. When you see Elvis Presley singing um, early songs in his career, I think if you imagine that he is channeling Rosetta Tharp, it's not an image that I think we're used to thinking about when we think about rock and roll history. We don't think about the black woman behind the young white man. Sister Rosetta Tharp was born on March 20th, 1950 in Cotton Plant, Arkansas, not far from the Mississippi River. 
Her parents, Katie Bell and Willis Atkins, were both cotton pickers. Here's biographer Gail Wald and Ira Tucker, friend of Sister Tharp and lead singer with the American gospel group The Dixie Hummingbirds, talking about the influence that Rosetta Tharp's parents had on her as a child. We don't know too much about Rosetta's father. What we do know about the father is that Willis Atkins could sing, and so it's possible that some of her gift of singing came from her father. Her mother um, was an evangelist for the Church of God in Christ. Her mother was incredibly passionate about the church. Rosetta's mother, Miss Katie Bell, was what we called her. She was a very traditional person, and basically she was what, what we called a stomp-down Christian. I mean, that's one that enjoyed stamping her feet and patting her hands and celebrating what she believes in. And the reason that I think that Rosetta really became such a strong woman was because of her mother. Because her mother, again, was the same type of person. She had no fear. She would take her guitar, she would take her tambourine, she would take her chair, and she would sit outside and play for people and try to convert them and to get them to go to church. In 1921, Katie Bell left Rosetta's father to become a traveling evangelist for the Church of God in Christ. Taking six-year-old Rosetta, she left Cotton Plant, Arkansas and joined the exodus of poor black Southerners heading north. There was work in Chicago and even something more crucial for the young Rosetta. Migrants brought the blues from the Mississippi Delta and jazz from New Orleans. Here's Anthony Halebutt, Grammy Award-winning record producer, and Gail Wald, Sister Rosetta Tharp's biographer, on this important time in Rosetta's life. Rosetta is often seen as a country singer, but that's a fallacy. Her major development occurred very early. She moved to Chicago when she was six. She and Mother Bell joined Robert's Temple Church of God in Christ, and the Chicago Sanctified Church was bubbling with musicians and new songs. And so she was exposed to something that was new. It was not rural, it was an urban kind of religious singing. It was at that church where she first really started performing, um, where she was the main attraction. There's a great story that has her being put when she's six years old on the top of the piano, um, holding a guitar, being put there so that she could be seen by the congregation and playing and singing and charming everyone with her talent and her precociousness. And when we come back, more on the life of Sister Rosetta Tharp, the godmother of rock and roll who influenced everyone from Elvis Presley to Johnny Cash and Chuck Berry. Brilliant. I wait a 
stick like glue Stick because I'm stuck on you This is Our American Stories. You're listening to Elvis Presley. Some people think he was the king of rock and roll. But Elvis Presley said that the real queen of rock and roll, the godmother of rock and roll, was Sister Rosetta Tharp. And we're listening to her story right now. Jesse's doing a great job, as always, on these music stories. I would urge you, if you get a moment, put in the words Sister Rosetta Tharp and Didn't It Rain on a YouTube search, and you will see something extraordinary. And everything we're talking about you're going to see the way she held that Gibson SG, a white Gibson SG, as she comes off a carriage in Manchester by a train station in a white mink coat, gets in front of a small uh, ensemble. There are a bunch of white British kids waiting for this African-American lady in a white mink coat holding a white Gibson SG, doing the duck walk, all the moves that you'd see from Chuck Berry and Keith Richards. She created so many of them. But let's now return to the story of Sister Rosetta Tharp. I'm so glad somehow I've got salvation now It keeps the spirit moving in my soul Here's Anthony Halebutt, Grammy Award-winning record producer, talking about Sister Rosetta Tharp's early performances before her teenage years. There's something within me Not just holding the rain she told me that when she was a girl, not even 10, she was immediately seen as an all-purpose musician. She'd go to a revival and she'd play her guitar. And if the people would get happy afterward and shout, she would drop the guitar and run to the piano and accompany them with her piano chords. And then she might get up and cut a couple of dance steps herself. She was a phenomenal showwoman. On life battlefield. Throughout her teenage years, Sister Rosetta Tharp was taken by her mother from city to city to perform in churches, tabernacles, and revival meetings, winning the hearts of thousands with her demure looks, angelic voice, and unique guitar style. She soon became a nationwide celebrity within the church, and this Philadelphia church is one of the first she performed in back in the 1930s, Church of God in Christ. Here's church parishioner Helen Henderson remembering Sister Rosetta Tharp. When I saw Rosetta, I was, a, I was about maybe 10 years old. Oh, she had, she had the most beautiful voice and the way she could speak to you. It made you feel different. You knew something was going on, even if you didn't understand really what it was. And that's the way it was with me because I was a child. And here's the pastor of that church, Robert Hargrove. Many of the hymns were expression of suffering and wanting to survive, many of them. And when she came and they saw the expression of her, the freedom that she expressed in her singing and dancing, it woke up the congregation. It focused them on something that was on the inside that they never gave expression to. Rosetta would start looking up. She didn't look at anybody. She looked up as if she saw God. And it was as if God was in her and she was communing with Him rather than with a human being. When Rosetta Tharp was 19 years old in 1934, her mother married her off to a preacher, the Reverend Tommy Tharp. For the next four years, she and Tommy worked for the church. Her job was to draw the crowds while he preached from the pulpit. But in spite of her mother's good intentions, the marriage was not working out. 
Here's Rosetta Tharp's best friend, Roxy Moore, remembering her old friend while sitting behind the keys at the piano. Look up! Look up! And see your maker before Gabriel. I met Sister Rosetta in the summer of 1937. She seemed a little bit glad that she was married, but she didn't seem to be very happy. And that's the reason I took to her. Because, you know, I wanted to just make her happy, make her feel as special as she really was. But I didn't have any idea that she and Tommy wouldn't make it. Ira Tucker, longtime friend of Sister Rosetta Tharp and lead singer for the Dixie Hummingbirds, remembers Rosetta's first husband a little differently. He was a tyrant. Um, From what my parents used to say and talk about, uh, he seemed to um, come out of the real, real sub-old school and believed in the kind of almost caveman-like attitude towards women. She was just a meal ticket. She was a performer and he used her to bring people to his churches and he would put her up to sing. And after a few years, she had enough and she said, you know what, I'm gonna leave all of it. And she made that big jump. Rosetta then left her husband and took her mother to New York. In a city full of nightclubs, Rosetta was soon noticed and offered a spot at the prestigious Cotton Club, singing to a white audience. Four, five, five. Four, five, But the song she was given by the men in charge made no mention of God. The lyrics were about pleasing her man. Here again is Roxy Moore and Ira Tucker. It was like a bomb had dropped on gospel music when she flipped. (laughs) It it was like, what? You know, I can't believe she's... That's Sister Rosetta Tharp. She's not supposed to be singing that kind of music. Oh, she was criticized and ostracized. I mean, the church people just, you know, just thought that she had just gone way off. Actually, it was hurtful to a lot of people because they felt as though they had lost something. They had something and it was great, but now it's gone. And they they viewed it almost like a death. You know, Rosetta is, she's gone. She went over. She's in like another world. Having discovered that she loved God and nightclubs, Rosetta decided to sing gospel in church and join the secular world of show business at the same time. The offers began to pour in. She was wanted by all of the big bands of the day, and in October of 1938, she signed a contract with Decca Records. Sister Tharp was also beginning to stir controversy. Here's record producer Anthony Halebutt on what was happening at the time. Her first hit was a song called Rock Me. And the the lyric is, Jesus, hear me praying. She sang, won't you hear me praying? 
So when, when she came to the chorus, when she sang, rock me, and growled, rock, it sounded really, to many people, like uh, an invitation, and not to the altar. And here's biographer Gail Wald talking about this part of Sister Rosetta's life. Recording the song in that particular way marked her as someone who was having the nerve to reinterpret a spiritual song for a secular audience. I think there was also a piece of her that was just rebellious. She does some very risque material with Lucky Millinder, most notably a song called Tall Skinny Papa, which was a big hit for Millinder's band, and she was the lead singer on that. And she sings, I want a tall skinny papa. There's no way of <laughs> misinterpreting I want a tall skinny papa for anything that has to do with um, spirituality. Roxy Moore also remembers that song all too well. The next thing I heard was this recording out a Rosetta with the tall skinny papa. So I said, it can't be Rosetta. So I went and bought the record. And after I listened to it, I said, oh my goodness, sister's out there singing that stuff. So when I, I saw her, I said, sister, I heard you tell Lucky Milliner that you weren't going to sing that stuff. She said, when I saw that contract, he had a clause in there that I had to sing whatever he gave me to sing, she said, and I didn't know it. And I had a seven-year contract with him. She said, and I had to do it. I have a question to ask you. Want you to tell me if you can. I want somebody to tell me just what is the soul of man. Following the controversy with Tall Skinny Papa, Rosetta resolved to stick with the songs she knew best, gospel songs. Her loyal followers back in the church got over the shock and stayed with her while she gained new fans that loved her music. This wasn't easy to pull off, but somehow, she did it. By the age of 25, Sister Rosetta Tharp was rated among the finest popular musicians of the day. In less than five years, she had established herself in a male-dominated industry, singing the songs she chose to sing in her own distinctive way. She was now rich, famous, and officially gospel music's first superstar. And when we come back, more on the life of Sister Rosetta Tharp. This is Our American Stories, and now our final segment on the life of Sister Rosetta Tharp. In a highly segregated society, black and white musicians performing together back then was considered highly taboo. However, Sister Rosetta Tharp was more than happy to defy convention. All we hear church people say, they are in this holy way. There are strange things happening every day. Gordon Stoker, from a band called the Jordanaires, remembers one such act of defiance. She was more or less a pioneer in asking us to even perform with her. She called us her, her four little white babies. 
And I thought it was so cute that, you know, that she referred to us as that, as, as that way. I thought that was just something I'll never forget. And we just loved to sing with her because when she started snapping her finger, man, and started singing on a tune, you couldn't help but sing. I know the first time we worked with her, they, they booked us. We went to the we went to the stage door, and some man came to the door, and uh, and we, one of us said, "Well, we are we are the Jordanaires," and he said, mm, "You you are the Jordanaires? Well, he said, this is going to be a surprise to our audience." Sister Rosetta didn't tell him that we were white. <laughs> she booked us, but she didn't tell him we were white. And it, it, when we first went out on the stage, they didn't really know how to take us, but then we started singing, working on the building. But then on then we were in. By the age of 30, Rosetta had survived two brief and unhappy marriages. In 1951, Sister Rosetta Tharp invited 25,000 people to her next wedding to her manager, Russell Morrison, followed by a vocal performance at Griffith Stadium in Washington, D.C. This was a massive publicity stunt. They would sell tickets to her fans and the recording rights to Decca Records. Here's biographer Gail Wald. So she records uh, her wedding ceremony and a concert that follows it in 1951. 25,000 people come out and pay admission prices to attend her wedding. They bring wedding gifts for her. They bring crystal. They bring... Um, dishes for her. Someone even buys her a television set. It's a total showbiz move. And at the same time, it's a, it's a wedding ceremony um, conducted by a minister, a real wedding ceremony. Despite criticism from her friends for marrying her own manager, Sister Rosetta Tharp remained married to Russell for the next 22 years. Meanwhile, back in the Mississippi Delta region, young white musicians were just beginning to discover the raw energy and complex rhythms of African-American gospel. George Klein, a friend of Elvis Presley's, describes the scene. There was a hip thing happening in Memphis at that time. There was a little church, and it was cool. It was a cool thing to do on Sunday nights only. You would go there, and there would be Elvis and some of the other guys from the area, and it was unusual because back in those days, white people had to sit in the back, and it was roped off. And we would sit back there, and we would watch these black spiritual singers sing on Sunday night. The thing that gospel spiritual music brought to popular music was feeling. Gospel spiritual music put the guts and the feeling and the real soul into it. And uh, people like Elvis and Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee Lewis and Carl Perkins and those guys, Buddy Holly, if you will, they saw that. And they adapted to that, and that really was the essence of rock and roll. Thinking about it, Sister Rosetta Thorpe, she had this great feeling, and that's what Elvis was looking for, feeling, because that's, what was, that's where it all came from. By the early 60s, Sister Rosetta Tharp's influence was continuing to spread as yet another generation fell under her spell. Here's a recording of the one and only Bob Dylan talking about Sister Rosetta Tharp on the radio. Sister Rosetta Tharp was anything but ordinary and plain. She was a big, good-looking woman and divine, not to mention sublime and splendid. She was a powerful force of nature, a guitar-playing, singing evangelist. It's a clean train. 
Everybody ride it if you can. You know, she traveled to England with Muddy Waters and a whole bunch of other blues performers in the early 60s. And I'm sure there are a lot of young English guys who picked up an electric guitar after getting a look at her. In the summer of 1964, Sister Rosetta Tharp was booked to perform in a British gospel television music special. The musicians were all American, the audience, English students. The venue, an old railway station just outside Manchester, England. Joe Boyd, the tour manager of the 1964 folk, blues, and gospel caravan, remembers that performance. The Manchester gig was a curiosity in the middle of the tour for us. It was kind of bizarre, but you know, we were all new to England and we were aware of all this interest in blues and gospel. We all thought it was strange, the setup with the audience on one platform and the musicians on the other. And she rose to the occasion. She loved the drama of the situation and sort of trying to bridge that gap between the platforms and sell the whole thing across the, the track to the audience. By now, Sister Rosetta Tharp was 49 years old and she had been touring on the road for 40 of those years. But even in cold, wet, windy England, the magic was still there. As she arrived on a horse-drawn carriage, walked to the stage, strapped on a white Gibson SG, and began to sing, Didn't It Rain? Didn't it rain, children? Rain, oh, yes. Didn't it? Yes, didn't it? You know it did, didn't it? Oh, oh, yes, how it rained. While Rosetta was away in Europe, her mother was becoming increasingly frail. In 1968, Katie Bell died. For 53 years, she had stuck close to her daughter, through good times and bad, and the one constant figure reminding Rosetta of her faith in God. The loss took a heavy, heavy toll on Rosetta. She became increasingly depressed, and to make matters worse, she was diagnosed with diabetes. There is a divine power. I believe it. I don't know about you, but I got to believe it, because I was raised that way. I sing this song. Made in 1970 in Denmark, this is the last known recording of Sister Rosetta Tharp performing. Just Lord, take my hand, lead me on, and let me stand. I'm tired, you know, I work so hard. And I'm weak. My body is warm. Rosetta's friend, Roxy Moore, noticed a black spot on Rosetta's foot one day and told her to have it checked out by a doctor. Roxy Moore and Ira Tucker described what happened next. Through the storm. She wouldn't listen to anybody. So the next thing, foot started turning black. Then she did have to go to the doctor. Then they found out they had to cut a leg off. Just to say. Sometimes she would call me and say, Sister, please come. Please come to see me. And I would say, All right, I'm coming. But the last few months I didn't go because, you know, Russell was acting like he didn't want nobody taking over from him. When I went over to see her and said she was in the bed and she was 
And she, she would say, where's Russell? I'd say, downstairs. And she would say, he's asking you about shows, right? And I'd say, no, he didn't say anything. He said, yes, he is. He, he wants to know if I'm going back. She said, and I'm going back. But I'm not going to tell anybody when I'm coming back. But I am coming back. But she never did. On October 9th, 1973, the eve of a scheduled recording session, Sister Rosetta Tharp passed away in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, as a result of a stroke. She was buried in Northwood Cemetery in Philadelphia. In 2008, some 35 years after Rosetta's death, the governor of Pennsylvania declared that the 11th of January will be known as Sister Rosetta Tharp Day. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Didn't it and great job as always, Jesse. This is our American stories. This is Our American Stories, and today we have one of our favorite regular features, The Villages Stories. Our youngest producer, Faith, has been going to The Villages, Florida, for quite some time. It's the largest retirement community in the country with over 150,000 residents. This time, she brings us a story from a woman named Violet, touching on an important topic, single motherhood. Take it away, Faith. The Villages has all kinds of different people. But everyone from the outside can often seem the same. But the more I talk to the folks there, the more I realize the variety of different backgrounds that exist, including the different types of struggles that people have gone through. This time around, I spoke with Violet, the leader of a hula dance troupe. She has loved dancing her whole life, but didn't get into it just for fun at first. When I was a baby, I was very, very pigeon-toed, and I, I would you know, literally fall off. I'd run, I'd trip over my own feet and fall off. So the doctors wanted my mother to put me in those these uh, braces that spread your feet apart like this, and it's metal. And uh, she didn't want to do that, and so she put me in dance. So I started dancing at two and a half. That's how I started. So that's why I started so young. But I loved it. I mean, I you know tap and ballet, and then all throughout my childhood, I did uh, you know tap and ballet pretty much. Uh, high school, I was in the modern dance club, and I competed. I competed in line dancing, and I did competition country western couples. And actually, that's how my husband now that I have, how we met. He was one of the judges in one of the dances. Competition contest that I was in, he saw me. He couldn't keep his eyes off me. He said, "So, and then that's. Um, I think that's kind of a life changing because I finally I was mostly single most of my my life with my kids. So I struggled, had a lot of struggles. Were you married before? I was married a few times. Yeah, but uh, I guess you can say you know just choose wrong or you know you think I can't explain it." She mentioned choosing wrong before she met her now husband. So, what was life like for Violet? Turns out she raised four children on her own, which of course involved a lot of sacrifice. 
I'll tell you how vulnerable one time when I was single and uh, had real tight budget. Um, it's kind of a sad thing because uh, my youngest daughter was maybe six or seven. It was a Christmas and I had no extra money to buy Christmas. Not even from from Santa Claus to put anything in their stockings, nothing. And so that Christmas I had to tell my youngest daughter because the others already knew that there was no Santa Claus. And I just I think I just crushed her. That was a hard that was hard for me to tell and she, you know, that broke her heart, but I you know, that's how poor at one point we were, but you just you just push through it. You just gotta push through it and do the best you can and and do a lot of praying that, you know, for guidance. And sometimes she had to even give up sleep just to make ends meet. When it got real tight, I had to get a second job. And I got uh, a job with uh, the Wall Street Journal throwing the paper. And I'd, I, and that was a good route because Wall Street Journal doesn't come out on Saturdays and Sundays, just during the week. So I would get up like at 1 in the morning, get ready. And my kids were old enough to get themselves ready and catch the school bus. Thank, you know, thank God for that. And... Um, I'd get myself ready, I'd have to go pick up my papers by 2.30, and then I'd go to my route, which was kind of far, south side of Houston, and I'd throw my paper route, and then I would go to work, starting at 7 o'clock in the morning. And then I'd come home, I had a little bit of time, I had to, I had to be in bed by no later than, for me, to get the sleep I needed, no later than 7 o'clock at night. I mean, anywhere between five, and so that was that was a, that was difficult. So that's what I did to get to get me some more extra money. So you did the work of a paper boy, but you know, through the car. You saw I was very good at slinging those papers. <laughs> yeah, I'd sling it across. I had a small car too. But how long did you do that for? I did that for about eight months. I, I, the stuff that I've gone through is like, oh my God, did I do that? I'm sure your kids appreciate you a lot. They do. They do. I'm sure when they were younger, they couldn't understand, well, how come I can't have a car? You know, Susie, Joe, parents bought her a brand new car to go to school. Well, I know I couldn't. I couldn't. I didn't have a brand new car. Wait, are there, so I'm sure when they are younger, they didn't understand. Have there been epiphanic moments for them? My youngest daughter, uh, she was in the Navy. She's uh, 40. She's her 40th this year. Uh, she has. She has come to understand what I had gone through. And she understands that you know, I was very strict, very strict mother, and you had to be with four kids by yourself. I was a very strict mother. Do you think you were too strict at times? No, I don't. I really don't. I mean, they, they've turned out beautifully, my kids. I think, I know she understands, they understand. I mean, um, I mean, they knew I loved them. I mean, I didn't hate them. No, it was strict for their own good, you know. Just like, you know, you need to go to work and you need to you need to pay for your clothes. And, and uh, it's still my oldest daughter to this day. The first thing she does when she goes shopping for clothes, she goes to the bargain rack. So it made her real, you know, thrifty with her money. So they, they all, get, you know, whether they believe it or not, they learned a lot from me. I still struggled. I mean, I still struggled, and I worked hard. Um, the kids, you know, when they turned 16, they had to get a part-time job and help, you know, not so much help me, but to be able to buy their clothes, makeup, 
whatever they needed shoes at that point. That and I think that taught them how to take care of themselves. So all my experience in life, I think, helped it build, build me, build me, made me strong. When do you feel like you saw the light at the end of the tunnel? When I got my manager job, uh, you know, the money I, I made pretty not great money, but I made decent money. I was able to buy a house on my own, um, and so I, you know, started, things started falling into place then. And then shortly after that's when I met my husband, Bill. What was it that helped her through this difficult time? My church. I found. Um, when I was, when the kids were younger, I, I grew up Catholic. Of course, my mother was in Italy. Of course, I'd be Catholic, right? Um, but I found another church, um, the LDS Church, Latter-day Saint. It's Mormons. That was a big turning point for me. It gave, like you said, it gave me strength. It gave me focus. Uh, it, made, it gave me, it helped me to know who I was, where I was going, and why I was here. I mean, all those questions people go, you know, what's the purpose of life? What's this and that and the other? And, and what so, are those things for you? It's in the belief of the Mormon church. It tells you, in, in this church, it tells you that uh, families are forever, not just um, not just here on earth, but you will be reunited with your family, your husband, your wife, wife or whatever, your children, and your grandparents. So you'll be reunited there. So and if you believe those things, you know, it's just, then it's not so scared, scary, you know, like what's going to happen to me or what, you know. so you know that stuff, so it gives you that part gives you strength on to, to go on Many people look to religion to help them through hard times, it gives them some sort of stability a community and the support that they need in order to keep going So for a young single mom or say yourself, what would you want to go back and tell yourself? How would you encourage someone who's in that position? Because that's hard. It is very hard. I would say, you know, just continue on. Just push through it. Push through it because it's not going to be forever. You're going to get past that point of struggling and so it's something, but God will reward you for the struggles you've gone through. And, and so just push through it. Just keep on, keep on, keep keep your head straight there. Violet worked extremely hard. And thankfully, her hard work began to pay off. I have an enormous amount of respect for her. Sacrificing sleep, money, and comfort in order to provide and protect her kids. She learned and grew as a person in ways that she otherwise wouldn't have. And her kids have grown to understand the sacrifices she made, even though at times before it was hard for them to understand. And they were all so happy that she found her husband. Someone to take care of her, protect her, the way that she did for them. So while Violet has had some difficulties, things seem to be going quite a bit better. This is Faith Garcia from Our American Stories reporting to you from the Villages, Florida. And thanks as always for that report, Faith. And thank you, Violet. Push through it, she said. Push through it. And God will reward you for the struggle you've gone through. And for all the single moms out there, and my bride's mom was a single mom, four kids. And I was just thinking about her because she worked 12 hours a day, six days a week, 
no vacation. My wife never remembered her mother taking a single vacation. Sometimes the lights wouldn't come on and they got through it and all the girls graduated from college. So push through and we celebrate single moms all over this country. It's hard enough being a mom with a husband. It's really tough without one. Violet's story, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and the other day I was flying and I bumped across an airline magazine article about intentionally planning to eat with people you don't know. That's right, I just said it. It talked about a company called Eat With, where you can sign up to attend a stranger's dinner party that they host in their home, and every guest is a complete stranger. But not so once the dinner is over, and that's the beauty of this. And we're fortunate to be joined by one of the first employees of Eat With, Noam Klinger. When she joined the company in 2014, it was a startup in Tel Aviv, Israel, with only six or seven employees. And she was the community manager for one of their two markets. Now they're in, get this, 200 cities across the globe and coming to a market near you. And she's now the global chief operating officer. And Noam, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Before we get into Eat With, let's talk about you. Tell us about your childhood in Israel. We always like to talk to people involved in business life. Your childhood in Israel and what it was like, and how did it shape you? So I grew up in Israel in a small neighborhood just outside of Tel Aviv, a place where everyone knew everyone, and I grew up with people who are still my best friends till this very day. I even married my neighbor, who was my best friend as a child. So a wonderful childhood. Um, as a family, we traveled extensively, and my parents always pushed me to see the world, to immerse myself in other cultures, and to follow my passions and dreams. There's um, you know, this talk about the Jewish mother who will keep her children close to her. So my mother was the opposite. She kept saying, go travel, meet people, try new things, and that's what I did. So when I graduated... When I got out of the Army, I traveled in South America for a year. I lived in New York. I lived in Barcelona and London. I traveled in India for a very long time. And I think this played a a great role in shaping the person I am today. Moreover, food has always been a great, great passion of mine and a big part of my family culture. We used to cook together. We used to host a lot of people. Every Friday dinner, we would host 20 to 30 people, an open table, and me and my father will create a new menu each week and produce it and host, and the door will be open, and people will join the table, and we keep this tradition till this very day. 
now I'm trying to do it myself in San Francisco. <laughs> and it, I, would, I would guess that in some ways, Noam, the, uh, the, the, the benefits you got from this and the joy you took in it uh, was instrumental in you starting and working with, or just at least working with this essential startup. Uh, it was that 20 or 30 so folks every Friday in that, in that family of yours, and not many other families were doing this kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. I was very fortunate to meet Eat West because I felt, in a way, this is a combination of everything I love. And it was an opportunity to bring this passion of mine and my family tradition and culture to my day-to-day work. So I kind of felt like I was raised to this, to this idea of meeting people around the dinner table. And Noam, you, you served in the IDF uh, as an intelligence officer. And folks, for those of you who don't know, in Israel, you're joining the army. Male, female, you're going in in some capacity and you're serving. And you said this in our pre-interview, the Army is a big part of who I am now, my professional skills on how to deal with people and manage big projects. I was only 18 when I went in, and it's an organization of young people, so you have lots of responsibility in your hands. So two things I think are central. Your mom, rather than keep you close, pushed you away and out, but not pushed you away from her. She just wanted you to learn. And by goodness, she probably got you to be closer to her by doing that. So every parent listening... And take note, there are different ways to do these things. But then this military experience, you told us this had a central part of your, uh, sort of your, your, your character being formed early. Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree. So I think the Army, um, you think of a military service as going into the field, but for me, serving in the intelligence force was a training for the startup culture. I was working in a very innovative uh, unit with... Uh, 200 soldiers by my side. Later, I was the commander of 200 people. So in the age of 20, I had 200 people who reported to me. This is a huge experience for a 20 years old. Well, you, can't like, like an, you cannot act like an idiot when 200 people are reporting to you. Exactly. And you get a lot of responsibility. You, tr- you train yourself in, in skills that are later very, very relevant to, to acting in the real world. And let's talk about the culture in Tel Aviv, because per capita, next to Silicon Valley, there are more startups there than just about anywhere else in the world. And I don't know that most Americans think of Israel and uh, this city called Tel Aviv as startup nation, but it is. Talk about what's going on there in the water, what's going in there in the culture. Why is Tel Aviv Tel Aviv? So first, I just want to say that after living abroad, I still feel Tel Aviv is one of the best cities to live in. It's a combination of diverse and creative people, old and new. It has the beach. It has an amazing food scene, as well as art and music. And that's along with the startup scene, was really, really strong, and with a mature ecosystem of accelerators, investors, uh, VCs, angels, mentors, um, you can hardly go to lunch without bumping into a fellow funder, developer, or investor. Everyone knows everyone, and there are lots of collaborations and general sense of a community driving everyone forward. Personality-wise, I think the Army, again, and the military service has a lot to do with that. So it's, look at it, I, I kind of like to look at it as a um, startup factory. So a lot of 21 years old graduating from the Army and are 
already trained and the most innovative units of the Army ready to join a startup and with a lot of um, actual experience, as well as a sense, um, a basic sense that life isn't granted and you never know what's going to happen in Tel Aviv in a year from now, which makes people, um, people tend to take more risks, to be very passionate, to be very aggressive, and not to be afraid of failures. They are willing to, to play it all. And I think this is what creates this sense of excitement and innovation and creation. And Noam, hold that thought. We'll be back to learn more about your dinner party startup, Eat With, after this short break. American Stories, and we're talking with Noam Klinger of Eat With, an Israeli startup that's the Uber or Airbnb of dinner parties. We were just talking about how the culture of Tel Aviv and Israel is so amazingly supportive of startups and risk-taking, the incredible talent pool, the vibrant energy, and the sober realization that Israelis can never quite take tomorrow for granted. So Noam, please tell us more about your particular startup, Eat With. How does it work? Okay. So EatWith is a marketplace that brings people together through food and homes around the world. This is the vision, to bring people together. We have about a 1,000 hosts, home cooks, and professional chefs in 200 cities globally who host tourists and locals for dinner parties, cooking workshops, and special culinary experiences. You can do it as a tourist when you travel abroad, or you can do it as a local in your own city. It doesn't matter. You can join a table, like you said, with people you don't know and experience something unique together, or you can book the whole table and get a special private culinary experience in the house of the chef. Um, I like to look at it. Think about you going to Barcelona, for example. Um, you can dine with all the tourists in the Rambla and eat paella straight from the microwave, or you can go and meet Alberto and Ella, our host, in their cool apartment, cook with them a paella from scratch and meet their friends, talk about the Catalan culture. I think people nowadays are looking for more intimate, authentic experiences, um, and this is exactly what Eatlist provides. Um, I think that's a, it's a remarkable thing, that authenticity you're talking about, because I think you're dead right. I think more than ever, when it, when it, whether it comes to content or whether it comes to, and I believe you're in the content business, a meal is theater, a meal is, uh, is content, the food is content, the conversation is content, and it's an experience like going to the theater or anything else, and maybe better. Um, because these are real-life relationships. You go to the theater, you leave. The only relationship you have is with the person you went to the theater with. You've learned a little more. You've been moved. But that's it. Um, you don't get to know the people in the audience when you're going to a play. 
I think that's what's distinctive here. Talk about how you find the people who host, because I would assume that you have to do a lot of quality control on that space. This isn't like Uber. Um, you've got to make sure that your brand is kept, kept solid and strong and protected by vetting properly the people who are going to be hosting these parties. A couple of bad experiences and your brand name suffers. How do you do that? So you're right. We take the vetting process very, very seriously. Um, we have, so some of our hosts, we actually found them ourselves. Um, the other way to go is to apply online and to go through our application process. Then we handpicked the best host in every city, the ones who will not only feed you with amazing food, but will also give you the full experience. So we're looking for this unique combination that is not only you know how to cook an amazing meal, which is fresh and unique, um, but also the personality of the host. And this is the most important thing for us. So who's the person who will open the door? He has to be a people person, someone who loves hosting, who knows how to control the dinner and to make conversation flowing and to make you feel at home, as well as the space. So it has to be clean. It has to have a good vibe in it. Um, So it's a very unique combination. We go through a very um, distinctive application process. And in the very end, we do a demo dinner where the chef actually opens his house for for guests and our and our guests um, the the people who are attended multiple eat with dinners will go to those de- demo dinners along with our staff to vet the actual place and the host. So every host on the platform is vetted. Uh, we take only four percent, four to five percent uh, of our applications, and they they will make it to the platform in the end of the day. Now, uh, you know, what's interesting is I thought food trucks were a fascinating thing that happened, but that's not an experience. It's just an interesting way for people who can't afford to open a storefront to make a living and then maybe open a storefront or maybe not just have a bunch of food trucks. I think this is fascinating because it gives the person who owns an apartment, just like an Airbnb, to an opportunity for revenue. Plus, it gives the person who might want to do something other than eat in a restaurant get the opportunity to have a real-life experience with someone from Barcelona, or even someone here in Little Oxford, Mississippi, a city, by the way, that lots of tourists from around the world come to because it's the home of William Faulkner, it's the home of the blues, Elvis's Gracie Mansion is not far away, and people from all over the world come to this little pocket of the country. And my goodness, you can go to one of our restaurants, or you could come to my house. My wife could have, well, she loves to have a big open area, and we have movie nights on Sunday nights, and we invite random people together on Sunday nights. We've been doing this now for seven months. It's now the joy of our life. We're going to do it forever. Long dinner and then a, a, a movie. And that's every Sunday. Now it's getting, we're, we're sort of catching wind in Oxford. Now we're not doing it for money. I think my point is that this might be an interesting way for someone who can cook to not only host and, and do some interesting things for folks, but people are paying for this experience, correct? Amazing. You just got in. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> And so, so talk about how, how, how this can be a, a neat experience. I mean, obviously, you've got to audition. You've got to have the talent. You've got to be able to cook. And you've got to be able to host, which is equally important, I would think, in this matter. Great meal, but you don't know how to keep the conversation going. 
Still not a great experience. So this is a, this takes a real talent. But my goodness, what if you could do this two or three nights a week and you're a stay at home mom and you wanted to really make some extra money and also really have a tremendous experience, but not risk a lot of capital? Um, this becomes a really interesting earning opportunity, uh, for someone who can start to get good ratings from the people who are going and enjoying this, this, uh, offering. Talk about exactly. that. Exactly. We have, uh, I would say, 25% of our hosts are using eTwist as their main source of income. The other 75% will do it as a hobby or as a supplement income uh, on the side. But for people who are doing it full-time, this is a huge opportunity. Think of, like, opening a restaurant nowadays. This is a huge risk, a huge financial risk as well as your time and efforts. And doing an eTwist, doesn't cost anything as a start, and you don't have to risk anything. So for those people, this is an amazing experience to test their recipes, to test their audience, to see how the reactions for their food. And we have hosts who are doing now about $20,000 a month. So wow. you, you can really make an income out of it. Now, do you think that there is going to be a time in the same way that Uber got challenged by local taxi cabs, the same way that food trucks were starting to get challenged by local restaurants going to the city council? Um, do you think there's going to be a time soon, or has it already happened, where some cities through the restaurant associations are going to go, hey, that $20,000 a month was mine. You're not regulated. You're not being taxed. Um, are you worried that some of the things that have happened to Uber and some of the things that have happened to Airbnb are about to happen to you, or are they happening? So first, I'd, I would just say that we're working with restaurants in a very close relationship. So we had uh, some famous ho- uh, chefs from famous restaurants who decided to do an Eat With event just to have a more personal connection to their audience and to invite people to their own kitchens. So I don't see it as a comp- direct competition, but as a collaboration that can come along. Obviously, the regulation is always a good question. Um, we're opening, an, opening a new category. It's a new, it's a new economy, the sharing economy, and it raises a lot of questions that hadn't been answered so far. But. We will get to them when the time comes, and I'm sure we can find a solution with each um, city council and state as it comes. And I'm sure you're right, because in the end, and this is what I found, you know, the other day I'm sitting in my little town of Oxford, Mississippi, a big college town, and the kids are talking about how the town was trying to block Uber, and they had successfully vetoed and worked over the city council and said, hey, come on, and now there's Uber in our, in our little town, and in the end, the citizens are going to make the decision, and the politicians just have to be very careful, because people want choices, and that choice is not only of where to eat, but also choices of how to make a living. And this sharing economy is new, and I think in the end it's going to work through all of its growing pains. This is Our American Stories, and after these messages, we'll continue our conversation with Noam Klinger of Eatwith, an Israeli startup looking to change how we eat when traveling, or around even our own hometowns. More after these messages. Everywhere I go, I keep saying the same old thing. 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we've been talking to Noam Klinger of Eat With about how her company brings together total strangers for beautiful gatherings in the homes of thoroughly vetted hosts. Well, they may start as strangers, but I bet they don't stay that way for long. Noam, will you please tell us some of your favorite stories about folks who met at Eat With dinners? Of course. So I have a lot of them, you know, three years of people around tables produces a lot of content. Uh, I was just invited to a wedding that will happen next summer of one of our top hosts in Barcelona who matches future wife in an eat with dinner. So she was a guest and he was a host, um, which is a beautiful story. Uh, this is not the first wedding we had at Eat With. We had two hosts who got married. They met through Eat With Meetup and they got married. And we have a lot of love stories coming our ways from people who met around the table as guests. And we have uh, guests who named their newborn after the name of their host because they had such an amazing experience. So they send us a letter with the photo of their kid and the story. And one of my favorite hosts in uh, Rome, she was a real estate agent in, uh, in our past, and now she's a full-time Eat West host. And she, every time she has guests over, she will either go with them afterwards to a party. She will hang out with them the day after. And she really creates those meaningful experiences. In, in last uh, April, she visited Israel and stayed in guests she hosted before in her house. She stayed now in their home uh, on our travel to Israel. And we had the opposite way when a guest, a host from Israel, who hosted a lot of Americans along the years, decided to do a road trip along the um, the West Coast, staying at her former guest houses. So they invited her to stay at their place after they dined with her in Israel. That's terrific. And Noam, we've noticed that you're on the board for the Israeli branch of Nifty the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. We absolutely love this group, and we had on our show the two best friends who won Nifty's 2013 National Youth Entrepreneurship Challenge with their business built around socks that securely hold shin guards for soccer players. You can hear that interview on our website, by the way, at ouramericannetwork.org. Now, um, we talked earlier about the superb culture for entrepreneurship and startups in Tel Aviv, and throughout Israel. So it's natural that Nifty would want to work with Israelis. Please tell us more about Nifty, what the group is doing in Israel, and how you participate. Share a favorite memory or two. Okay, so you touched one of my favorite projects I'm involved in, and I'm happy you asked about it. Um, So as you said, Nifty, the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, originally it's an American program, but it was brought to Israel, I think, 
in 2006, I hope I'm not wrong, um, and their mission is to provide educational programs that inspire young people from low-income or deprived communities to stay in school, to recognize business opportunity, and to plan for a successful future. Basically, take the tools that we have in our day-to-day day-to-day professional world and to give it to them in the early when they're young um, it's not about turning them into entrepreneurs or make or building businesses it's about giving them the basic tools and networking skills asking questions innovation working in teams and all those skills the soft skills that actually help them to be better people in the end of the day and to open up doors for them um, in their future. I'm in love with this project. I've seen amazing cases of people who got to really change their life through this program. I just, um, I think a week ago, the global competition of the NIFTI teams from all around the world met in New York and I just got the photos of the Israeli team of four boys who took the flight the first time of their life. They mm. bought a suit for the first time of their life. And they had to pitch in English for 10 minutes about their new startup idea. And for them, that was a life-changing experience. Oh, indeed. You know, what I find is, and I've worked with uh, some inner-city kids here in, in the United States on this, and they're always thinking, how can I do a startup? I have no money. And I said, look, you do a startup because you might have a great idea. And someone with money might give you not only the money, they might give you the training. There's a thing called social capital. And very often what we're looking for is your idea and you, not your money. We're looking for you. And I think that there's such a level of ignorance about how companies get started, who starts them, and how they get started. And I'm so glad that you're working with Nifty. It's it's such a tremendous organization. If we can educate young people about this, we might just bump into a few more risk takers who were young. Look, I'm Lebanese. You're Israeli. It's in our blood. I mean, in, in, my, in my family, if you don't go out and start a company or do something, you're disinherited. Um, we have to do it. So it, it's just a, it's a cultural thing. Um, how often do you personally attend Eat With Dinners, Noam? Uh, just you yourself. Do you spend time in the field just dropping in on Eat With Dinners? So it touched the fun part of my job. I try to do it as much as I can. I'm a strong believer in keeping like con- straight connection with the host and the guests. So I try in I try to go as much as I can. There were times when it was three to four times a week. Now I have a two years old back home. So I do it less, but I if I'm not at dinners I would talk with hosts, I would talk with guests daily. I felt this is a big part of making this product and service better and understanding how to move forward. Yep. That's a great idea. You know, Bernie Marcus, one of my heroes, we did an hour on him. He's the founder of Home Depot. He said that half his life he spent just visiting the stores and making sure the connection between the customer and the people on the, on the front lines were tight and then giving them the resources to solve their problems. But he was always concerned with the interface of the customer and the product and the rest of it be damned, and make sure that management is responsible for that, that position. And so I'm sure that's uh, got to be a preoccupation with you. Those dinners start to go down in quality, and you've got yourself a problem, don't you? Mm-hmm. And let's talk about one last thing before we leave. You decided to leave Tel Aviv 
and bring your corporate team over to San Francisco. Uh, how, how has that experience been different? And talk about what life's like in the Bay Area uh, since you've moved. So I just moved three weeks ago. And I must say, it's an amazing experience so far. Um, I'm still investigating the city and trying myself to meet as many people as I can and to experience food and culture. And there's a lot to experience here, that's for sure. Well, you're at the perfect company to do that, by the way. <laughs> I mean, just start doing Eat With Dinners and you'll meet lots of people in the city. Exactly. And exactly. Uh, it, Noam, this is a wonderful story. Eat With is the company. And my goodness, what a great idea to bring people together. We're talking to Noam Klinger. And this is just a part of our regular Entrepreneur Series. And thank you so much for joining us, Noam. This is Our American Stories, and we just love stories like that. Culture of entrepreneurship, leadership, great food, world-class hospitality. What more can you ask for? We've been talking to Noam Klinger of Eat With about her Israeli-born startup that connects folks who don't know each other to have great dinner parties. It's like Uber. It's like Airbnb. But for dinner, conversation, and making friends in new places. And by the way, make you and your family a little bit extra money on the side. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. stories and we tell all kinds of stories here about love about loss about business about risk-taking history and this one comes from a friend of faith's and she shares an important subject that is often avoided here is mimi's story it's always odd to talk about yourself with you you're sort of forced to take this perspective that seems arrogant if you say good things and self-deprecating and weak if you don't and no one likes to feel weak or out of control growing up i was raised by a mother who told me never to show weakness that other people always deserve your best and nothing less this is an excellent strategy for planning a cocktail party and my mom is the queen of parties ask anyone (laughs) but not as effective for managing human emotions. Appearances were always kept up in my house, and I really tried to be this perfect, amazing, wonderful, in-control human. And in my house, that equated to being thin. I was a ballet dancer since I could walk. I pursued the career professionally and had many successes until I quit at age 19. 
I quit because the director of a very famous ballet company told me that although my technique was flawless, my artistry incomparable to anyone else my age, and I had a long, successful career ahead of me, I needed to lose at least 15 to 20 pounds. And my breasts were too large and distracting. I should consider getting them surgically reduced. And at that moment... 15 years of 40 hours a week or more of dancing, conditioning, crying, starving myself, throwing up until I had to get a root canal because of tooth decay, were just thrown away. He only saw me as my weight and nothing else. And keep in mind that I was very, very thin at the time. Actually about 40 pounds thinner than I am right now, and right now I'm at a very healthy weight. Something inside me just broke. I felt like I was fighting to fit into the mold of the prima ballerina, ace bandaging my breasts down in tutus a la Hilary Swank and about a boy, starving, self-harming, suicide attempts, depression. Everything just came crashing down at that moment, and it was all for nothing. I quit right then and never, ever stepped into a ballet studio again. And I haven't to this day at 24 years old. My mom stayed in bed for a month. I remember counting calories at 10 years old, tying a bathrobe around my waist so tight that I couldn't breathe to try to make my waist smaller, pushing my chest against the ground to try and flatten (laughs) my boobs after I suddenly got double D's during puberty, (laughs) and turning the bathtub on full blast to cover up the sounds of my vomiting at my dinner. I guess you could say that I was anorexic and bulimic starting at age 13 until about 20. I never sought official treatment other than the occasional therapy. And my extreme dieting was condoned by my mother as a job hazard and necessary to get where I needed to go. I never knew that I had an eating disorder until I was about 18. I thought that starving myself, looking at pictures of emaciated models for hours and hating myself was just a part of my life and career choice. And just let me say really quickly, uh, I love my mother. (laughs) She is an angel. I say these things and share these memories knowing that what she did, she always did out of love and out of her own warped understanding from her own upbringing. She is a strong, creative woman whom I loved very dearly. But I have learned that it is imperative to acknowledge the past if we want to move on. I have always been overtaken by the feeling that I was not good enough, something that I still struggle with today, as many of us do. I have never had a time in my life where I have not been trying to lose weight, sometimes more successfully than others. My lowest weight was horribly low. So unhealthy and terrible, I had three broken bones and fractures because when you don't eat, your bones break. And even then, at my very lowest weight, I remember telling my mom that I thought I looked pregnant in my new white leotard. I wish I could go back and tell my 16-year-old self that this isn't worth it. The lie being sold to you that you will only be happy if you're thin is false. Stop doing this to yourself. But I can't. I can only learn from what happened to me. 
I am often regretful about abandoning my career as a ballet dancer. I could have easily went with another company. I based my decision on one horrible old-fashioned man. I could have gone with a more contemporary form of dance where they are more accepting of more diverse body types or commercial dancing. But you really do need to let go or be dragged. If you cannot change it, you should not stress over it. My eating disorder was inextricably linked to ballet and my mom. So I thought that once I quit ballet and was spending less time with my mom, I would be okay. And I was very wrong. I never figured out why I hurt myself, why I did what I did. I never acknowledged how sick I was or how distorted my body image was. So all of those issues still followed me as I tried to live a normal life. My eating disorder and my depression were my comforts. They were familiar. It was all that I knew. I never knew how to eat normally, how to not count my calories and fat grams, how to enjoy food, why I shouldn't be binging and purging every other day, how to not feel guilty about having a cookie, how to see exercise as something beautiful and therapeutic and not as punishment. And it has taken me up until this past year to find some answers. I must say that the body positive movement has impacted me greatly. Let me end with who I am today. I am a 24-year-old woman who believes that all shapes and sizes are beautiful. There is so much more than what is on the surface. We were not put on this earth to try to fit into a size zero. We were put here to be ourselves and to bring our own unique talents and light to this world. There is an enormous power in positivity. I cannot say this enough. Your thoughts become reality. I know it sounds cheesy, but it is true. And you can thank my boyfriend for that advice. I laughed at him too. As far as recovery goes, I am not a doctor or a therapist. I can only say what I think and what I've experienced. But you have to decide to get better. You have to decide to let go of those comfortable, harmful behaviors. And you need help. You can try to do it alone, but from my experience, you will relapse. Professional help is essential, but building healthy relationships is so important. You always want to isolate yourself with an eating disorder and with other mental illnesses. Those people who care for you will help you stay on track. They will make you feel like a valid human and remind you that you are important and needed in this world. Surround yourself with positivity and work every day to let go of your old thoughts and actions. You will fail. I did. More times than I can count and I'm still failing today. And it's okay to have days when all you do is go to the bathroom and maybe get a snack. It's okay to curl up in your blankets and just hide for a while. It's okay. It's okay to feel what you feel. Just try not to stay there. Also, food is amazing. <laughs> it's so much fun. Such a bonding experience when you're with others. And you'll learn to love it again. You will learn to go clothes shopping without an emotional breakdown. It will take a couple tries, trust me. It's, it's taken me so long and sometimes I still have a rough time. But 
you will learn that there is nothing wrong with you. It's the clothes. It's a piece of fabric. Don't let it dictate how you feel about yourself. Beauty is arbitrary. It's societally constructed and you get to define it for yourself. And if anyone else tries to, punch them. Okay, fine. Don't punch them. Educate them. Educate them to question these traditions. Who said women or men for that matter have to look a certain way? Who made up these rules? You can and you will let go of whatever is holding you back. It can be an eating disorder, addiction, bad habits, etc. But make no mistake, I do not believe I will be ever completely rid of my eating disorder. It will always be there, probably until I die, because it became a part of me and therefore is who I was. But it's not who I am anymore. You can acknowledge the past without living in it. Take care of yourself and love yourself because you are perfect the way God made you. And thank you for that, Mimi. It took a lot of courage to tell that story. I have a 12-year-old girl, and she's already looking at that mirror and wondering about her body image. Is she thin enough? Is she pretty enough? And this is just an occupational hazard of being a woman. It's also starting to affect young boys as we see more and more photoshops of men with their abs all over the place and they're thin and they're losing weight. And it's just it's a disturbing trend in America, this self-starvation, and particularly the world of ballet, which I got to experience a bit when my sister was young. And it is a brutal world. It looks beautiful on the outside, but the image comportment and having to look like that thin, thin swan is really, really tough. Mimi's story here on Our American Stories.